Welcome to the 13th of February 2024 episode of the Greenwich and Town for All Season Show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Binghamid, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, and it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich at Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show, we'll visit the Stanwich home of one of Greenwich's 19th century abolitionists. On Greenwich Life as it is and was, Lucian Edwards shared his thoughts about the town's residential parks. A century ago this month, the founding of one of those parks was announced. Its name, Millbrook. Valentine's Day is almost here, and you'll hear news of crimes and misdemeanors in Greenwich. You've come to the right place to learn about the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, one of America's most extraordinary communities. We'll have all this and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. Backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. 32. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at healthsitepro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. 
Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Seek virtue rather than riches, he said. You may be sure to acquire the first, but cannot promise for the latter. No one can rob you of the first without your consent. You may be deprived of the latter a hundred ways. The first will gain you the esteem of all good and wise beings, and the latter will get you flatterers enough, but not one real friend. The first will abide by you forever. The latter will have you at death to shift as you can at eternity. Those lofty words were uttered by the man who lived in what is known today as the Brush Lockwood House, built in circa 1792, located at the northwest corner of Taconic Road and North Stanwich Road in the back country. His name? Shubal Brush. As we observe Black History Month, I wanted to share the words of this humble but remarkable gentleman who was one of Greenwich's leading abolitionists. Shubal Brush was born in Greenwich on April 17, 1801. He married Sarah F. Brush, on February 20th, 1826. She was the daughter of Samuel Brush and Mary Ferris, and from them five children were born. There is an image said to be dated circa 1850, facing east on North Stanwich Road, looking towards Taconic Road. The original Stanwich Congregational Church was still there at the time, with the Brush Lockwood House located behind it. If you look closely at the center of the image, you can see part of the front of the old Stanwich Inn, dated 1801, that still stands today on the east side of the intersection. At the time this image was captured, Schubel and his wife Sarah were living in the old house. I have seen many of Greenwich's old historic homes over the years, and this particular one has always held a certain appeal to me. There is something rustic yet uniquely elegant about the Brush Lockwood House. Framed in by mighty oak trees and maple trees, it made me feel when I last visited there as if we had been transported away to another place in time. According to one of his descendants, Stuart Camp Brush, the retired pastor of the North Greenwich Congregational Church years ago, Shubal Brush was the last tanner in the Stanwich section of Greenwich. Now, what is tanning? Well, a 19th century tanner was someone engaged in the business of processing the hides of animals to leather. His tannery shop was located across the street from the house. That building still stands today. Now, according to Reverend Brush, Shubal was registered as a farmer, although he did not own any livestock. Over 30 years ago, Stewart told me about a large collection of papers, legal documents, church records, and personal letters that were found in the attic of the Brush Lockwood House. He said that they were detailed and descriptive of the Stanwich area's history, and they are now housed in the archives of the Greenwich Historical Society in Coscob. One of the things that intrigued me about Shubal Brush were his opinions. Among the papers we sifted through, we found some of his viewpoints on issues of subjects written down. 
many today in the 21st century would find him to be a man well ahead of his time. I directly transcribed these, some of which I now share. All were penned by Schubert Rush in the time around 1845. He begins with, quote, To expect, my dear, that your life should be one continued series of pleasure is to expect to meet with what no mortal from Adam down to the present times has yet met with, and by nature of things is an impossibility. Another opinion that he expressed was, quote, It is easy to live well among good peoples, but show me the person who can preserve their temper, their wisdom, and their virtue in spite of strong temptation and universal example. Here's one that I think will uh, ring a bell with the, the women who are listening right now. He says this, are not female citizens justly entitled to all the civil, social, and religious rights of male citizens? Certainly all female citizens are in a republican government. In a republic, all of the citizens are justly entitled to a common interest. Nature and reason is fast settling this great principle. Why is it so? I answer because Christ's command is being obeyed. Men and women are searching the scriptures with greater diligence. He also says, The truth shines forth and unfolds that women still, as the last crowning act of creation, was endowed with superior skill. <laughs> yes, women's rights she boldly and fearlessly proclaims for mercy's sake. The thought that women's counsels may prevail in the chain of state fills petty tyrants with fear and infidels, and all stand shaking in their shoes. They will know virtuous, energetic women is their greatest foe. The social, political, and religious rights and great privileges claimed by man from revelation or tradition are equally the rights of women. And when and whether justly exercised in the councils of families or nations, by the way, again, that's, that dates from circa 1845. Now, Schubelbrush was also a committed abolitionist, and he wrote the following. Quote, I am surprised to find men intelligent in the 19th century claiming and asserting that the word of God sanctioned slavery as it now exists in this nation. But the abettors of slavery have attempted to construe his word and work to prove slavery is of divine origin. Is not slavery a sin? Yes, it is a great national sin, but we are told the word of God sanctions slavery, or in other words, that it does not prohibit slavery as it now exists. And we in which he authorizes the slave trade as it now exists in this nation. Who, I ask, does not know that robbery and murder are inseparably connected with slavery as it now exists? The very idea of becoming a land or sea pirate to capture human beings to sell into slavery to American slave masters fills the mind with horror. And should I charge any or either of the abettors of slavery as now pursuing such a course, they would denounce me as a vile slanderer attempting to bring them into disrespect by the vilifying of their characters. I should be dragged before some earthly tribunal to answer for such rashness. God sooner or later will arrange the business with all who charge him or claim it is his will that the system of slavery should exist, unquote. And as I conclude, Schubelbrush died in Stanwich on September 16, 1864. He was interred in the Stanwich Congregational Church Cemetery about a quarter of a mile south of the house he lived in for so much of his life. The 
best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut, is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together, thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good, at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. Speaking of coffee for good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that coffee for good is an on-the-job training platform with Abilis for people with special needs? Well, it's true. Its graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. Well, tomorrow is Valentine's Day here in Greenwich, Connecticut and elsewhere around the United States and even far beyond. Uh, I have uh, several items that I'd like to share with you from a historical perspective about how the holiday was observed here. Let's start with, uh, let's see, this one from 1905. And uh, the uh, story goes as follows. Uh, and again, 1905. Last year was leap year, but there wasn't much doing in matrimonial or even lovemaking circles on that account. The young men who wanted it with becoming modesty for the young women to quote-unquote ask Papa were disappointed. This year, they have their rights again, and if the Valentine season is any indication, there is going to be a lot of courting done this spring and summer, and ice cream sodas will have a big sale. It is a fact that never in the history of the Greenwich Post Office was such a business done on Valentine's Day. More drop letters, letters for town, were deposited than ever before, and the carriers had heavier loads than any other time of the year. But they didn't mind that. Letter carriers are fond of lovers and are willing to be the bearers of missives that burn, especially during such cold weather. As an indication of the demand for the sentimental devices of cardboard and lace paper, S. Warren Mead, the stationer, 
received nearly a carload some weeks ago. It was the opinion of his employees that he would have to carry a lot over to next year, but Mr. Mead was a more accurate judge of Cupid's work. As an actual fact, every valentine in the store was sold, and Mr. Mead is priming himself on, priding himself on being an emissary of happiness to hundreds of young people. That came from the year 1905. What do we have next? Well, we have news of a Valentine's Day party uh, that uh, was held in 1896. And uh, this one goes as follows. Catherine L. Mead and Winifred E. Mead gave a St. Valentine's Day party to their young friends on the afternoon of February 14th at the home of their parents, Mr. and Mrs. Elkana Mead on Millbank Avenue. There were about 30 young folks present. The feature of the afternoon was Valentine delivered by a special messenger to each one of the boys and girls, and they had a fine time looking at Cupid's messages. They enjoyed themselves with games and sports and sat down to a tempting supper just before they made their departure. And I can tell you this, that the house that was uh, held, where this party was held, um, is 178 Millbank Avenue. It's uh, unit number one. It's the one that is closest to the street. And um, it was recently on the market. I understand that it has been sold. It's listed as being, um, let's see, uh, built in 18 or 1995. That's actually not true. Um, it was actually built in, I believe, 1887. Uh, the house is still there. We're very glad for that. I think so, anyway. And then I have one more Valentine's Day story to uh, to share with you. This comes from a century ago. This was printed on February 8th, 1924 in the Greenwich News and Graphic. Where in the world did I put that story? I just had it right in front of me. And ah, yes, here it is. The charm of a party given... Uh, oh, this is actually instructions. If you're looking for instructions on how to give a Valentine's Day party from a uh, 1924 perspective, I have it for you here. The charm of a party given on St. Valentine's Day, February 14, can be greatly enhanced if one will use the electric, the electrical equipment of the home in the manner suggested in this article. This includes not only novel lighting effects, but also directions for preparing refreshments by the aid of the smaller electric cooking appliances. Let us first consider how the living room may be decorated for this occasion. For the sidewall brackets, cut heart-shaped shields out of fairly translucent red paper and use them in place of the regular shades. In the case of the translucent bowl of the semi-indirect ceiling fixture, you can accomplish a very pleasant effect if you will arrange little paper cutouts in the shape of Cupid's doves, hearts, and other emblems of St. Valentine's inside of the bowl. Hmm. In addition to this, get out the electric Christmas tree lighting outfit. It is 100% useful at Christmas time, but in many homes is unused the rest of the year. String the miniature lights along your mantles with paper hearts or cupids, shading them or employ them in the decoration of your table, masking them with tinted paper cut into appropriate symbols of the saint whose day you celebrate. Informality is one of the charms of a party on St. Valentine's Day. Have this thought in mind when you plan your supper and call on your electric percolator, chafing dish, and waffle iron. 
one or all to help you. If you prefer to have part of the refreshments prepared in advance, you may make jellied chicken in a large mold or in individual forms, heart-shaped sandwiches, and little cakes that you can buy or make in heart designs. And if you prefer ice cream to a warm dessert, have this too in a heart mold. Should you desire to omit some of the dishes generally suggested, heart-shaped sandwiches served with creamed oysters will be acceptable. Cut bread into hearts and toast these to serve under the oysters. Order a brick of well-frozen ice cream and lay thin slices of this between hot electrically cooked waffles as a dessert. With either supper, Jan will wish coffee make or made in your percolator, and whichever menu you choose, you need not fear for the popularity of your repast. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. It's time for Greenwich Life as it is and was. This was a column that was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic about a century ago. And in fact, the column that I'm going to share with you today is from February 8th, 1924. And it was written by Lucian B. Edwards. The topic, residential parks, of which there are quite a few here in Greenwich, Connecticut, um, with interesting histories in all of them. The first one being, of course, Bell Haven, but there have been others that have come along since, and uh, Mr. Edwards has some uh, thoughts about that. It goes as follows. The recently reported sale of 40 acres of farmland of the Houston Farm on North Maple Avenue and the Parsonage Road at nearly $100,000 shows how acreage property has increased in value in Greenwich in recent years. Running through the section of one of the largest farms in Greenwich 30 years ago was a brook of the purest water in which there were great big trout and in the fall of the year there was a pond made near Parsonage Road, where ice was harvested, uh, harvested, which constituted a part of the Greenwich ice supply. Mills Houston, heir to this fine farm that had been in the family for nearly a century and a half, father of Mills H. Houston and Mrs. Adeline Houston Rungi, who was a genial man whom everybody who knew him liked and had a local reputation for the fast and fine horses he raised. He used to drive one of them to the village, and meeting some of his friends would say, quote, Come up to the farm, and we'll go to the brook and catch some trout, unquote. You may be sure that if they accepted his invitation, they were well treated. The total amount paid for this section of the Houston farm, which, not, while not the largest price paid for, uh, for Greenwich farm acreage, comes very near being the highest figure that any of the Greenwich farmland has ever before been sold for. The largest total sum that has ever been paid for any of the Greenwich farmland was that which was paid for the section of the Oliver Mead farm at Field Point by the Field Point Land Company. The amount 
being $500,000. The company of which Oliver D. Meade was president and R.J. Walsh and Nathaniel Witherell, the other shareholders, was capitalized for $1 million. Not only after the transfer of that land to the Field Point Land Company, it began to be developed for suburban residential sites and was called Field Point Park. Bellhaven had already been opened up, quote-unquote, and several handsome and costly residences built there, but in the development of Field Point Park, a different plan was followed. The Bellhaven Land Company had constructed roads along the shorefront, erected a casino, and made a bathing beach so that all Bellhaven residents had the same privileges of the shorefront. But residential sites in Field Point Park along the waterfront were laid out so that the purchasers had the exclusive right to that section of the waterfront, and a drive was constructed around the center. There were a number of large Greenwich farms soon afterward developed into sites for suburban residences. Nathaniel Witherell purchased the centrally located and desirable Zachary, Zachary Mead Farm on the Round Hill Road and Glenville Roads for this purpose. Previous to Mr. Witherell's purchase of this farm, where he saw so many natural features that would attract prospective purchasers of suburban residential sites, all such acreage uh, had been allotted the, the shorefront, and there was some doubt about the Zacchaeus Mead Farm becoming a popular suburban section. There was a large running, let's see, th a brook through the farm and picturesque rock formations. And when the farm was purchased, there was a pond and ice house at the junction of Glenville Road and Lake Avenue, where Henry Webb, one of the progressive Greenwich businessmen of the town for 30 years, harvested ice. But one only has to take a, a walk or drive around Rock Ridge to realize what a success Mr. Witherell made of his undertaking and how much Rock Ridge has added to the taxable real property of the town of Greenwich. Rock Ridge, which was the section of the Jabez Mead farm on the north side of the post road through the Brothers Brook, runs also, uh, let's see, uh, developed into a fine suburban residential park section. Over in Sound Beach, there were shorefront residential uh, parks laid out, and they became very popular for homes for New York families, especially those for those who wanted suburban houses just for summer months. Other, though smaller, residential parks afterwards were opened up for moderate-priced homes, mostly in the East Porchester section of town. By the way, East Porchester today is known as Byram. The de development of Greenwich unimproved land for suburban residential sites is not yet over yet. The latest just reported is the project of the Millbrook Holding Company for the development of 273 acres of the Elizabeth Millbank Anderson estate recently purchased. Greenwich might properly be called a town of residential parks. There are so many of them here, and so many more of them are likely to be developed in the future. There is no town in the state, it may be said, where there are so many high-class residential parks as there are in Greenwich. Considerable Greenwich farmland has been sold for residences that was not located in a park, the larger part of the land of the Colonel Thomas A. Mead farm being sold that was not to be a residential park, 
It didn't need to be. It was so desirably located. When the lots were offered for sale on the Field Point Road, where the Long Island Sound View was unsurpassed by any section of the town, the lots were quickly bought, and soon that commanding site had many fine houses located on it, for which large purchase prices and rentals were the rule for many years. It was the popular residential section for many wealthy residents for several years. Probably the first purchase of Greenwich farmland for a large or private estate was made by Mr. LaForge, of a New York builder, who bought some, 75 years ago, several hundred acres of farmland located in Clappard Ridge, where he built what was considered the finest, finest house in Greenwich at the time. Later, he put up a frame business building on Upper Greenwich Avenue next to the old town hall, a public hall being located on the second story. William M. Tweed was probably the next purchaser of farm acreage in Greenwich for the site of his suburban residence, the land now being a part of the Elizabeth Milbank Anderson estate. Many Belhaven residents, after living there for a few years, became desirous of acquiring acreage property. The first, or among the first, of them being the late E.C. Converse, who purchased through the late W.J. Smith several of the Banksville farms until he had acquired some 2,500 acres, some of the land being located in New York State, and he became the possessor of the largest number of acres of farmland of any Greenwich owner and developed the largest and finest farm in the state of Connecticut and probably in any other state of the United States, though some ranches may be larger in area. Charles A. Moore was another Belhaven resident who bought a farm located in Round Hill. The Rockefellers and W. H. Croft owned large tracts. Thompson Seaton has a number, a large number of acres in what may be called his unique estate, uh, and that would be Windigool, by the way, and to name all the owners to, uh, of other beautiful estates would be to name many of the wealthy families of the country. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store in Artists Cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. A century ago, it was announced that yet another residential park would be developed here in Greenwich, Connecticut. The land that it comprised was uh, at one time one of our uh, Mead family farms. Uh, then it became the property of Elizabeth Milbank Anderson. And then it was acquired by a company called Milbank or Millbrook Holding Company. And it is the community that we know today as Millbrook. 
Let me share this with you. My source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic, Friday, February 1st, 1924. Home seekers will no longer find any difficulty in securing suitable residential sites in Greenwich, as is shown by the big realty development which is taking place on the large acreage, formerly the Elizabeth Milbank Anderson property, but now owned by the Millbrook Holding Company, located off the Boston Post Road at the foot of Putts Hill and extending to Indian Field Road. When completed, the vast estate will be one of the finest showplaces in Greenwich with its picturesque residential colony, beautiful lake swimming pool, golf course, clubhouse, and tennis courts. The 273 acres purchased by the Millbrook Holding Company, of which Arthur H. Waterman of Brooklyn and Rye, New York, is president, has been undergoing extensive improvements since last June. Armand R. Tibbetts, landscape architect, drew the plans and is in general charge of the development. There will be 175 acres for residential plots, varying in size and price. 25 acres is to be reserved for lakes and swimming pool, 25 acres for the layout of roads, and 50 acres for a golf course. Augustus G. Wilson is sales manager for the property, 75 acres of which is now ready to be placed on the market. More than a mile and a half of road has already been constructed, except for surface treatment. The two roads are practically finished, one leading from the main entrance on the Boston Post Road, skirting the brook and opening up land on the north side of the lake, crossing between the two lakes in swimming pool and coming out on Indian Field Road, thus forming a, a main artery uh, between the Boston Post Road and Indian Field Road. The other road also opens up desirable property on the other side of the lake, merging in with the present road. Later, it is contemplated to have this road continue to Railroad Avenue, which will greatly reduce traffic in the borough and be a great convenience for those living in that section, making a much shorter cut to and from the railroad station than that of the borough road over Putnam and Greenwich Avenues. The residences which overlook the golf course are so laid out and related to one another and to the golf fairways, trees, and greens that the usual backyards will be transformed into charming gardens and lawns, overlooking the broad grassy golf area. The picturesque rock ledges existing in many places form fine backgrounds for greens and trees and create a winding system of roads which in turn permits of each plot retaining its proper topographical fitness and the advantages of views over lakes and golf area. The nine-hole golf course has been made possible after cutting through dense woodland, but will be more picturesque as rock ledges, trees, and other growing natural plants will form suitable backgrounds. The course, which is at the north and eastern part of the estate, runs up to the the post road and near Indian Field Road. Situated on a high knoll will be the clubhouse, to be known as the Millbrook Golf and Country Club. It will overlook the lakes and swimming pool. There will be a swimming pool, 100 yards in length, which forms an intermediate level between the two lakes, made possible by a waterfall of nine feet at the foot of the upper lake. The pool is thus assured of fresh running water circulating through it at all times. 
and is at the same time a separate body of water in itself, made doubly attractive by its two waterfalls and rocky background covered with trees on the other side, while its other side has a sloping beach, one portion of which is fenced off into a narrow or a shallow wading pool for children. A stone wall is constructed about the swimming pool. The upper lake will not be open to the public. The lower lake will be open to the public, but will be exclusively for those occupying homes and the property. There will be fishing as well as boating to be enjoyed in both of these lakes. Bathhouses will be created for the swimming pool, which will be a part of the golf club. While a certain number of Greenwich people may be admitted to membership of the golf club when it is opened, those occupying homes on the different sites will have the first rights. Two clay tennis courts will be laid out the coming summer and probably others later. These will be adjacent to the clubhouse. Mr. Waterman is giving his personal attention to the work. All real estate brokers in Greenwich have been invited to cooperate with Mr. Wilson in the selling of residential sites. Peter Mitchell of Greenwich is doing all of the work on the property with the exception of the golf course which is being constructed by Berthoff Brothers. Alec M. Bryson of Brooklyn are drawing plans for the the clubhouse and also a dozen houses on the property. S.C. Miner and Company, Greenwich Civil Engineers, are doing all of the computing of areas and the engineering work. Well, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors. This is the segment of the show in which we pause to observe that in 1906, the Greenwich Police Department was formed and founded, um, and that we still live in a rather imperfect world in which crimes are still committed. Oh, well. Hmm. Anyway, the story that I have for, t- for you today is dated February 20th, 1914. It was covered in the Greenwich News, and the title of this is Peddler Rob says two men at North Mayanus took watches and money. Hmm. Samuel Jacobs, a Porchester peddler, claims to have been held up by two men on the River Road, Mayanus, at six o'clock last Thursday evening and robbed of four watches and $54. Jacobs claims that one of the men struck him on the back of the head, knocking him unconscious, and that his peddler pack was then looted. He stated that one of the men first asked him to show him a cheap watch, which he sold to him for a dollar. The stranger handed him a ten-dollar bill, and Jacobs thereupon proceeded to take uh, his pocketbook from an inside pocket. It was then that he was assaulted. A quarter of an hour later, he regained consciousness and went to a nearby house, told his story, and aid was summoned. Constable George T. Jones has since been on the case, but has been unable to discover who the highwaymen were. Tomorrow, February 14, 2024, from 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., the Greenwich Historical Society, in partnership with the League of Women Voters of Greenwich, invites you to its local transcribe-a-thon as part of a nationwide celebration of Douglas Day, marking the birth of Frederick Douglass. The day will include activities such as transcribing documents and various speakers on Frederick Douglass. For those unable to attend, the event will be live-streamed, and you can enjoy 
the curated Spotify playlist. Douglas Day is an annual program organized by the Center for Black Digital Research in which thousands of people gather to help create new and freely available resources for learning about black history. A different collection of black history is featured each year, and the Douglas Day Transcribathon helps create new digital resources for African American history. All materials created are made free and open to all. To learn more about this, please go to GreenwichHistory.org, or you can call 203-869-6899. Thank you for listening to the 13th of February, 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bingham Mead, your host. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Listen to past shows by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Check out the ongoing events and exhibitions at the Greenwich Historical Society at GreenwichHistory.org. And I ask you to consider joining as a member. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 20th of February, 2024. I look forward to being with you. Take care. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.